All right, so I'm just unbending my notes. <laughs> um, let's start off with an important question. Who has ever lost their car in a car park? Oh, it's not just me. I actually thought maybe nobody else would put their hand up. <laughs> um, but oh, you would if you did park your car in a car park. <laughs> I also use a number of memory aids to help me remember where I parked my car. So I'll snap a photo of the number and colour of the car park level and even the shop where I walk in. Or if I'm on the street, I might take a screenshot of Google Maps. I'm sure there's cleverer ways to do that. But um, this helps me not to lose my car. And just as a disclaimer, I don't normally lose it. Um, but back in my uni days, I was traveling into the city for a placement and I was going in every morning, driving to Thornley Station, getting the train in and back. Um, and one night I came back and my car wasn't there. So I said, silly girl, you just forgot where you parked your car. That's how I talked to myself. Um, and I started at the top and went down all the levels. And I think I did that twice, feeling kind of this increasing sense of panic. And then I realized somebody had stolen my car because I knew I parked it in the station car park, I knew I'd checked all of the levels and I knew it wasn't there. So the only explanation left over was that somebody had taken my car. I didn't know what to do, so I called my dad. Um, if you're a dad here, just a heads up, you're in this for the long haul. From my experience, your children don't grow out of thinking that you can fix their problems for them. Um, anyway, it was an anticlimax. My dad came, drove into the car park and in about one minute he found my car. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I still don't know how I missed it. I'd convinced myself it was stolen. Um, but my problem was that somehow I just didn't see what was right in front of me, or maybe my eyes swept over it, but I just didn't register or recognise it. Um, and we're going to see something like that happen in our Bible passage today. So keep your own eyes open when we read it and see when our people miss seeing Jesus or not seeing who he is. I love the name that Sarah has given this section of Matthew that we're looking at, Jesus Among the People and also the song that we sang tonight and kind of where we went in worship as well. It speaks to the deep need that is inside each of us for God's living presence with us and in us and among us as a community. Um, and I know that there are times when I feel this desire really strongly and also times when I kind of forget about it, um, almost like it's just not there. But whether I'm remembering it or not, it is always what I really need and what we as human beings really need the presence of the God who made us and loves us is the place where we're truly alive and well and free. And before we get into the passage, we will get there, <laughs> but I want to set the scene by reminding us that for God to make his presence, his dwelling among people was actually an old promise. It was really the promise of the Old Testament, repeated time and time again, I will be your God, you will be my people. So God was doing a new thing in Jesus, but he was also doing an old thing. And God's purposes are like that. They stretch further back and further forward and further inwards and outwards and up and down and all kinds of directions than what we might just see in our present moment. So the identity of God's people was actually always based on his dwelling with them. God's presence was promised many times. Um, for example, in Ezekiel, God says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Notice that when my presence is with them, then the nations will know that I'm the Lord. And in the Old Testament, there were various ways that God's presence was kind of facilitated or mediated in his people. Um, and the main ways were, first of all, the Ark of the Covenant and 
um, the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. So these were physical spaces with a whole lot of rituals and a priesthood and things as well. Um, but spaces where God's presence was made known. So in Jesus' time, the temple was the place that pointed to God's promise to dwell with his people. And it was also the place for the forgiveness of sin through the offering of sacrifices and receiving God's mercy and thereby enabling that continuing relationship with God and the continuing presence of God with his people. And this is an important backdrop to the events we're about to read in Matthew. So maybe just keep that in your mind. Um, we're going to read now from Matthew 9, verses 1 to, 9, 1 to 13, sorry. Um, and I think it's going to be on the screen. And I might just pray for us before we read, actually. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Um, and it speaks to us when we come to receive. So I pray you would open us up to your word and open your word up to us. Amen. Um, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, um, some translations miss this word out because it's a bit awkward to put in English, but it means pay attention. This is important. So behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, again, pay attention. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, this is important, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So there are two stories or scenes that we're looking at here. Um, in the first scene, Jesus forgives and heals a man who's paralysed. And when he tells the man he's forgiven, the scribes or the teachers of the law think that's blasphemy because they know that sins are forgiven by God and they're forgiven at the temple on the basis of sacrifices made according to the law. So how can Jesus proclaim this man's sin to be forgiven just like that and without any sacrifice being made? This was a big deal. Jesus responds by asking the scribes, is it easier to tell the man he's forgiven or to tell him to get up and walk? Interesting question. <laughs> um, but he seems to be saying, he seems to be saying, at least one of the things he's saying is that each thing is equally impossible if you are without God's action and without God's authority. And in this instance, the visible healing is evidence that Jesus has also accomplished the less visible, deeper thing, forgiveness, so that you may know, he says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here, um, and this refers to a figure from the book of Daniel, prophecies in the book of Daniel, but also I think it is significant just in itself that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He chooses that title rather than the Son of God, um, for example. 
In verse 8, it tells us that those who saw this miracle glorified God who had given such authority to men. It is significant that Jesus was a man as he was doing these things. He was God, but he was also human. And in him, God was creating a new way to be a human being, filled with God's presence and God's authority. And in doing this, Jesus was remaking and renewing the whole idea um, that had been behind the temple. So the heart of the temple had always been for relationship with God, but there were lots of restrictions and regulations as to who could enter parts of the temple um, because of sin and how this encounter with the presence of God could be facilitated kind of without people dropping down dead from God's holiness, basically, which does happen sometimes in the Old Testament. Um, but now here we see Jesus outside of the temple building, ministering God's presence and forgiveness freely. And ultimately, he would accomplish this kind of remaking of the temple through his death and his resurrection when he offers himself as the final sacrifice for sins. We don't see the whole picture here in this story. Um, remaking the temple might seem kind of strange language, but it is an image that Jesus himself uses at one point when he describes his death and resurrection and resurrection, um, kind of with the image of a temple that's destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. So let's shift to the second scene. Um, and in this story, Jesus calls Matthew, who wrote the book, to follow him. And then he goes and has dinner at his house with a bunch of other tax collectors, so probably Matthew's friends, um, and sinners, we're told. And the Pharisees, who were a Jewish religious group, see this and they're deeply critical. Um, tax collectors in that particular context weren't just people with an unpopular job. They were actually seen as traitors because they were collecting taxes from their own people for the Roman oppressors. And they were usually playing the system to line their own pockets at the same time. Um, so they were generally kind of despised by most people, especially, you know, God-fearing people. Um, and the sinners who joined the dinner party were also people who had clearly made some kind of a reputation for themselves by living a lifestyle with sin. So how could someone who aspired to be a religious teacher associate with these kinds of people? It's certainly the last thing the Pharisees would ever do. But Jesus' response cuts to the heart of how he sees his purpose in the world and also um, it cuts to the heart of our purpose as his people. He tells them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he quotes a verse from the book of Hosea and tells them to learn what it means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I love how Jesus sees people. All through the Gospels, we see him calling people, challenging them, knowing what's in their hearts, speaking to them what they need to hear. And even when he speaks to the Pharisees here, he isn't just telling them off. He's using their own scriptures to remind them of the time when the prophet Hosea was calling the people to repentance. Um, and back in Hosea's time, the main problem was idol worship. So idolatry, worshiping idols other than God. And Hosea called the people to show true repentance through their whole lives, um, particularly showing love and mercy, not just through offering sacrifices. Imagine the Pharisees' response. Surely they don't need to repent. I mean, those tax collectors and sinners need to repent, but not the Pharisees. They know that they're living a holy life in order to please God. But can it be possible that although they are ticking off all the boxes or a lot of boxes as they seek to please God, they are actually missing the point, the heart of what it means to worship him. So much so that Jesus compares them or speaks to them from a context of um, comparing them to idol worship, a situation of idol worship. So mistaking God, mistaking who God is, not worshiping the true God. 
can they be missing the new thing that God is doing and the way he's moving in Jesus because they're preoccupied with the way that they know things operate. Ironically, even though it was new and unexpected, what God did in Jesus um, was a fulfillment of the old promises of God's presence. But the Pharisees here failed to recognise this and part of their difficulty um, would have been that they had already lost sight even of what the temple was meant to do and how the temple was meant to function viewing it a bit more like an exclusive club rather than a house of prayer for the nations. Jesus quotes this verse about mercy and not sacrifice later on in Matthew as well, when his disciples are criticised by Pharisees again for taking and eating grains of wheat um, on the Sabbath day. And in that situation, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that there are exceptions to the Sabbath Sabbath law, um, like when bread can be eaten in the temple on the Sabbath. And he says that something greater than the temple is here now. So the New Testament writers looked at the life and teachings of Jesus, situations like this passage we've read. They looked at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Jesus died and rose again. And they held it up against the backdrop of the Hebrew scriptures and the promises of the Old Testament. And then they write about the community of believers as being God's temple. So this is what has replaced the temple in Christianity. It's the people of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or rather, this has fulfilled the temple and all the promises associated with it. So you can find talk um, and description like this in places like Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter. Um, Here's one from 1 Corinthians 3. It says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? I know that I can miss how amazing this is um, and how this fulfills all the promises for God's spirit to be present, not just alongside and with his people, but actually in his people and in in every one of his people. Um, But this is the way that Jesus pioneered, that he carved out for us as he walked among the people and walked to the cross and through the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And this is the way that we can walk in, that he has made for us when we base our lives in who he is and what he has done. So Jesus took the functions of the temple on himself. He ministered God's presence and forgiveness and love. He facilitated repentance and reconciliation with God. And he did so out amongst the ordinary people and even the so-called worst people, not the privileged or good or correct ones. And instead of people having to go to the temple, we see Jesus stepping out and going to the people. The Bible does talk about people being drawn to us or to the light of God in us. But if we follow Jesus, we will also be drawn to the people. And especially to those who we may not naturally feel drawn to. I stand convicted by Jesus' words, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And at first I wanted to give you an example here of how um, this verse has spoken to me in my work as a teacher, which it has. Um, It's helped me to see the difficult children in my classroom as the ones who are most in need of my help. Um, And God's word speaks to us on all sorts of levels and it's all good. Um, But while I was preparing this talk, I felt challenged on a deeper level by the depth of Jesus's actions and words. He wasn't just sharing a meal, like the Pharisees weren't offended because he was just sharing a meal with people who were a bit inconvenient or who they didn't really get on with. Jesus was sharing a meal with people who had been greedy, had exploited others, had lived lifestyles of sin that the Pharisees would have fundamentally disagreed with. I don't know about you, but when I look around the world and I see the many things that are not right, I can feel really overwhelmed. Um, I don't want to 
kind of look at it all. I just want to bury my head in the sand. I don't want to deal with the mess and the complexity and the pain. Um, but <laughs> do I choose to turn away from the people and the situations that confront me with the world's brokenness? Do I ignore it and try and set up a neat and tidy and fairly smoothly running little life for myself? Or will I, like Jesus, allow myself to be drawn out to engage with these things and with people, with Jesus' love and compassion and his hope and his power? When I think about living like this, I realise that I basically don't know how to do it. Um, I always do feel this overwhelm. Um, but when I don't know what to do, I call my dad. That's a corny one. Thanks, Alina. <laughs> I told her to laugh when it was meant to be funny. Um, anyway. I call my heavenly dad, um, but I do think for those of us who want to reach out more and who want to sort of learn what it means more to be the temple of God in the world um, and make him known, it does begin like so many things in the secret place. It begins with prayer. Um, it begins with even just allowing ourselves to think about these things that we may want to quickly rush, rush on from and not think about. Um, Think about social issues, think about our troubled world, think about the people around us, um, and then bring this before our Father in prayer. So then we can allow him to keep moving us outwards. Um, it is his work, but we need to give ourselves to him and make that space. Um, speaking of mess and complexity, here I am, um, and I am really thankful that when something is not right with me, Jesus is not repelled by that, but he's drawn to me. He's drawn to heal me and change me, and he enables me to repent and realign my heart and my life with him, just like he called the Pharisees back to his heart. How will I respond when he calls me back to his heart? When Paul talks about how God has entrusted us with ministering the new covenant and um, making Jesus known to others, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Or who on earth is equal to such a task? Um, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to finish with a prayer from Exodus 33. Um, here God is telling Moses to lead the people on towards the promised land, but he has also shockingly just said that his presence won't go with them because of their stubbornness. And from verse 15, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses gets it. We are to be people of his presence. This is at the core of our identity. And it's not for our own benefit only, although his presence is the place that we flourish but it's for the nations and the people of the world to know him. So let's pray that God would make us meeting places where people can experience his love and his forgiveness through Jesus, where people can meet him and be reconciled to him. Um, and I just wanted to spend some time now um, just listening and reflecting on our own um, before we get into groups and pray together, if there's time for that. Um, I encourage you to allow the scripture that we've read to settle in your heart. Maybe close your eyes if that helps you to focus. Um, ask God what he's highlighting to you. And if anything um, has stood out to you or if anything's been stirring in your heart, just sit with it for a bit and ask God to speak more into it. Don't rush away. So maybe let's just sit and um, wait on God for a little while. Yeah, one thing I did feel when preparing this talk is that um, we're all really capable of losing sight of what really matters, maybe in a specific situation or a specific moment or maybe over a longer period of time. 
Um, and if you feel that's you, ask God about it and ask him to show you where his heart is um, and to free you from places where you might be a bit stuck. Yeah, God, it is amazing that you would choose to dwell with us and in us um, and that you would choose us to make you known and entrust us with that in this world. Um, yeah, I pray for more of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we need to be filled up. Um, in order to be your people here. So I pray that for each one of us and for us as a church. Um, God, I know sometimes I need a ridiculous number of memory aids to remind me that my life is not my own and not about myself. Um, and I pray that you would always keep drawing us outwards um, when we become too kind of turned inwards um, and help us to be flexible and to enjoy seeing what you're doing um, and where you're moving and the new ways that you might want to move um, in each person's life here, God. I pray that our eyes would be opened, um, each one of us to see that um, and that we would hear your call and we would move with you, Jesus. Yeah, thank you that your work in us is never just about us, but um, it's always for the world that you love as well. Amen. Do we have time for like prayer? Yeah, I thought so. But um, so we might just get into groups of, I don't know, about three or whatever works. And um, if there's something that you want to pray about or something that um, stood out for you, maybe just share it with your small group and pray for each other.